So this evening I'd like to reflect on the theme of fabrication and non-fabrication. I'd invite you to imagine yourself as an artist standing before a blank canvas and in your hand you hold a palette of colors with which to paint your world. And to reflect on how you would paint your world or even how you are painting your world right now in this moment. Are we painting our world in the moment with our views, with our moods, with our wants, with our joys or our sorrows? Are we painting our world of the moment with aversion or with kindness? Are we painting our world of the moment with disappointment, with fear or confusion? Or are we painting our world of the moment with spaciousness or contentment? Because however it is that we are painting our world of the moment, this is the world we inhabit, the world we react to, the world that shapes our choices, our speech, our behaviors. It's the world that defines our sense of aspiration and our sense of possibility, or the world that may also define our, define our sense of impossibility and limitation. Now, much of the painting that goes on can feel quite automatic. A lot of it, you may have noticed, feels very repetitive. Um, it often feels that there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unpredictability, a lot around this world that is painted, a lot that is unchosen. You know, it's probably not so unfamiliar to you to to wake up in the morning and to feel that you almost step into a world of experience that's just waiting for you, that's somehow already shaped without any kind of conscious choice or intention, almost feeling preformed that we might wake up in the morning and feel like we step into a world of sadness or a world of doubt or a world of anxiety. We, we count ourselves very fortunate if we wake up in the morning and feel that we step into a world of happiness or calm. The Buddha was quite passionate about understanding the architecture of distress and suffering so as to be able to bring distress and suffering to an end. And he clearly pointed out that if we, if we understand how distress comes into being, if we are to understand how distress comes into being, then we also need to understand the architecture of our own personal world of experience and how it is shaped and how it comes into being moment to moment. It's a quote by Gota. It says, I've come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. 
It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. The Buddha speaks of the world in two ways. One is the world of conditions. Each moment of our day, each moment of our day, our sense doors are flooded with sensory impressions. Sight, sounds, taste, smells, touch, sensations, thoughts, through the sense door of the mind. All of the cascading images and memories. So events are streaming around us, and they are streaming within us. And some are lovely, and some are unlovely. We come across events of remarkable generosity and kindness, and we equally encounter events of remarkable ill will and confusion and ignorance. So we sense that we're always being touched by the world, and we're always touching the world in every moment. So this first world of, uh, that the Buddha speaks about is this world of events, sensory impressions. Now the second world, and this is what we're deeply concerned with here, not that we're concerned with the, not concerned with the first world, but the second world that we're exploring here is the personal world of experience. The world of our hearts, our minds, our bodies, the world of our views, our confusions, our understandings, all the ways that we interpret and react to the world of conditions and events. Now these two worlds, this world of events and sensory impressions and the world of inner experiencing are co-arising. We're deeply impacted by the world around us, and we deeply impact the world of events and conditions. They are co-arising, but they are not necessarily co-dependent. We can be in the midst of the most delightful conditions, sun shining, good food, wonderful people, and be entirely miserable. And we can be in the most difficult circumstances and find that somehow we can be deeply peaceful and compassionate and responsive. So it is important, I think, to be clear about these two worlds, the way they're interfacing and they're interacting, and to be able to distinguish between them. Now, at the heart of the Buddhist teaching... Um, is, is the message that we, we can find a way to live within this world of conditions and events 
most of which we do not choose or can't, and we can't control, that we can learn to live in the midst of this world of events and conditions without being hostage to it and without being defined by it. And yet the Buddha also ta- taught us that equally that we are not invulnerable to this world of conditions and events. Sometimes life just hurts and we feel it. We know how much conflict there is in the world and it's important that it touches us deeply. We know of how much injustice and harmfulness is being done in this world and it is important that it touches us deeply. It requires something from us as one teacher called it, an appropriate response. Responses of care, responses of clarity, responses of courage. But our personal world also asks for appropriate response, which is understanding. There's a a quote that says, people tend to think of their mind like a mirror more or less accurately reflecting the world as it is, not appreciating that the mind is the principal architect of that world. Isn't it so that we we do tend to believe our views to be quite absolute? Um, We do tend to believe our opinions are, are, are quite accurate and definitive. We do tend to believe at times, although you're probably losing that belief here, uh, that our moods and our emotions and our thoughts are somehow reliable and trustworthy. I hope you're losing that conviction, by the way. (laughs) We kind of just say, this is how the world is. Our views about ourselves, our views about others, are held with such, such conviction and certainty, aren't they? I am. This is just how I am. I've always been this way. I am this. And this is who you are. (laughs) I know you. Hmm? And it's really quite hard and at times quite humbling for us to accept that we may not at all (laughs) be seeing the world or the moment or you or myself as it is, but often what we're seeing is our mood and our view. This is really hard to to accept, you know. I, I have people tell me, you know, I'm, I am not aversive. I'm just helpfully pointing out your imperfections. <laughs> Quite sure of this. Hmm? Quite sure of this. Or, or, or you know, it, of course it's a simple fact that the world is populated by greed and selfish, selfish people. Everybody knows that, you know. Or, I'm not anxious. It, it, the world is really threatening. And no one can be trusted or relied upon. Oh, we love our views. And we don't know their views. (laughs) This is the problem. (laughs) The Buddha, in looking at his own mind and looking at the minds of others, saw that really this world of experience is a process. It is a world that is being built It's being fabricated moment to moment. And the key to our freedom lies in understanding that fabrication process. And and the Buddha offered a a, a map 
of well, he offered many maps, and but he offered a, a couple of maps of cognitive chains, chains of fabrication that can be tracked and traced within our own experience. Now, one of our hurdles is that the world of fabrication happens so quickly that really to begin to trace the process of how our world of experience is being built and fabricated moment to moment actually requires quite considerable stillness and mindfulness and calm and curiosity. Yet this is one of the primary gifts of this path that we're undertaking. We're beginning to slow down some of those processes. You may find by this point of the, of the retreat uh, that you're a little bit able to, more able to track what's going on in psychological process. You know, it's not all such a mystery anymore. And when we can begin to slow down some of these processes, they can be investigated. And this, this is actually what takes the bewilderment out of life. Instead of asking with despair, you know, how did I end up here? Often followed by the word again. Um, we know exactly how we ended up where we are. You know, we're not puzzled by it. We may not have an easy answer or an easy solution, but at least we're not puzzled by it anymore. It's kind of an uncomfortable awareness, but at the same time, it's helpful. We know exactly how we ended up sort of confused or contracted or unhappy. And by beginning to be able to track these processes, we also begin, I think, to have a little bit more confidence in the possibility of finding another way of being in this world, not ca characterized by clarity, by spaciousness, by understanding. So these two cognitive chains that I want to reflect on this evening, they're, they're both slightly, slight, slightly different, but both are very trackable within our own experience. So, the first one I want to read you. Where there is contact, there is feeling tone. Do you know what contact is? Contact is the meeting of the, the sense door and the sensory impression and the knowing. Okay? So, where there is contact, there is feeling tone. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate about. What we proliferate about, we dwell upon. What we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind, and the shape of our mind becomes the shape of our world. Ring any bells? <laughs> huh? Sound familiar a little bit? Okay. Where we end up is that this is my world of experience then in the moment. The shape of my mind becomes the shape of my world. Now the second chain unfolds in a slightly different way, but pretty much begins and ends in the same place. Where there is contact, there is feeling tone. Feeling tone is the condition for craving. 
Craving is a condition for clinging, identification, and clinging is a condition for becoming. Also, ring a few bells, I hope. Okay, so we become, this word becoming, uh, we become defined by what is identified with. If we identify with the body, I am the body. If we identify with sadness, I am sad. If anxiety is identified with, I'm anxious and afraid. If doubt is identified with, I'm hopeless, incapable. If shame is identified with, then I have become the kind of person who is unworthy or unlovable. So the Buddha put it very clearly, he says, the world, and he means here the world of experience, the world arises with contact. And with the cessation of contact, there is a cessation of the world. Then he goes on to say that the foolish pursue contact and the wise seek to understand it. Now, the world that ceases is not this world of conditions and phenomena and events. The world that ceases is the world of fabrication, the world of distress, the world of contractedness. The unfabricated is one of the synonyms for nirvana. Okay, so let's come back to the beginning of these chains, contact. The meeting of the sense door, the sensory information. The eye meets the sight and there's seeing. The ear meets the sound and there's hearing. And the body meets the sensation, there's sensing. Let's come back to this place of contact. Now, this is not something we have choices over. This is, you know, occurring moment to moment in our experience. Um, and there's, it, it's, it has no ethical implications at all. You know? there, there simply is contact. The nose meets the smell, the tongue meets the taste, the the mind meets the thoughts and images. Now in some uh, Buddhist imagery, uh, imagery used in Buddhist psychology, these six sense doors are portrayed as the five open windows in a house. And the sense door of the mind is the open door of the house. And through the windows and the door flow the world of sensory impressions that we live in the midst of. Now, there's nothing particularly personal about this. This is not about me. It's simply life. So what we're learning to do in the practice is to seat mindfulness, to seat awareness. Where do you think? (laughs) On the windowsills and the door sill. This is where we're learning to seat mindfulness. Where there is contact, there is feeling tone. So here, it actually starts to become a little bit personal. We're beginning to paint our world. What we contact has, as we've spoken about quite a bit by now, (laughs) has a hedonic or feeling tone, okay? It's either pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's neither. What, has a f- what we feel, we perceive. We have a name for what is arising through the sense doors. You know? Oh, there's Billy. 
you know, or, you know, that's a robin, you know, or that's a banana, you know, or, you know, it, so we have a name for what's arriving through the sense doors, you know, we, we're, perception is kicking in. And our painting is beginning to take shape. Now, perception, of course, can be simply navigational and absolutely necessary. We're not in the business here of trying to annihilate perception. You wouldn't remember how to get home or, you know, which bed to get into. or You know, uh, uh, you know perception is absolutely necessary, and much of it is simply navigational. Or perception, in fact, many of our perceptions, are already charged with association memory, emotional memory, related to how we have perceived something in the past. So Billy means something to me. You know, it's not just Billy. It's my Billy, you know. It's my Billy. I mean, I know Billy, you know. I know Billy to be the one who's always squirming on his cushion, you know, and disturbing my meditation. You know? I know who Billy is. So Billy is already carrying, you know, my perception is already carrying a certain amount of baggage. We see this happening all the time. I say banana, you know. How does it land? You know, one person might be basking in some delightful memory trip their last time in Jamaica. We hear the bell. How does it sound? You know, we're thrown back into emotional memory of the last difficult sitting. What we perceive, we think about. And what we think about, we proliferate about. That means we think a lot. What we think about, we proliferate about. We are narrative-based beings, and you probably have noticed, I'm sure, that we have no shortage of stories and commentary about pretty much everything. And all too soon, all too soon, we find ourselves captured by the story. And the story is telling us who we are. The story is telling us who we are. The story is, is telling, telling us who another person is. The story is telling us what life is. And the story is loaded with memory and association and emotion. And our mind is being shaped and our world is being shaped simultaneously. Our picture is painted. Two people standing on a beach. One delights in the prospect of a swim, another's afraid of the water. You see a deer in the woods. One person is transported right into Bambi land, and the other sees a tick carrier. (laughs) Two people hear the lunch bell. One begins to salivate with anticipation, and one worries about the calorie load. Two people hear the same wake-up bell. One leaps out of bed, hmm? eager for another day on the cushion amidst this lovely community of people. The other hides her head under the blankets, dreading another day of torture in the company of a hundred depressed people. Two people 
same sensory impressions living in quite different worlds, and both are likely convinced that theirs is right. Hmm? Both are likely convinced that theirs is right. And that there's no room for any other experience to be allowed in there. These are quite benign examples, but of course, they're often really not very benign because it's those very same fabrication of views and fabrication of worlds, fabrications of positions that are the root of you know, the conflicts we see in our world around us, the dysfunction, the hatred, the prejudice. It's all built within these same processes. So let's look at this a slightly different way. Where there is uh, contact, there is feeling tones, as we have talked about in this, we keep hammering this one. <laughs> All sensory impressions imprint on consciousness in a pre-verbal way, as pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Feeling tone is a condition for craving. The world begins to be painted in a particular way. We find ourselves suddenly caught in an impulse of moving towards the pleasant, moving away from the unpleasant, and essentially ignoring that which is neither. The world is becoming personal. Our picture is taking shape. It happens in such small and large ways, isn't it? Uh, often many of them are really not catastrophic, you know. But I'm scratching my shoulder before I ever thought, this is unpleasant. Do I want, does it need scratching? You know, I'm just scratching. Hmm? I'm moving my, my position, you know, before I have a conscious intention to say, oh, this might be a useful thing to shift my position. No, I'm just out of here. You know, my, my knee is up around my neck or whatever. You know? So we find ourselves just, just, it's just impulse, isn't it? It, it feels quite, quite unconscious. We we hear the you know the the see the lunch sign you know I wish they wouldn't put that up there you know and we're already planning our you know our second helping and how we're going to get away with it you know and and as 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 craving and what we actually see as craving and aversion intensifies it becomes clinging our identification I think it's very important to see the continuum here. Clinging identification is not something, some separate process or phenomena. Clinging identification is part of a continuum that begins with feeling tone, begins with the reactions of craving aversion that intensifies into clinging and identification. So this is a continuum. The mind contracts around what it likes and dislikes, and it becomes very personal. I need this, you know, or I need really to get rid of this. Where there is clinging, there is becoming. The birth of an I am. The birth of the self of the moment. The Buddhist psychology is very clear. You know, it's kind of a mistake to talk about an I or a self. There is a process of selfing. Huh? There is a process of selfing. The self is a verb. It is a verb, and it often feels to be an uncertainty. Because the whole identification process is often so unconscious. 
Now, so the selfing of the moment is shaped by what is being correct, contracted around, and of course the view of self that is born is, shapes how we see the world, how we act, how we speak, how we react. So the invitation for us, I think, is really to explore what is actually happening at these open windows and door of the house. As sensory impressions flow in, learning to seat mindfulness on those windows and door sills. And this is where we begin to have choices about the picture that will be painted, about the world of experience that will be shaped And we learn here to step out of fabrication. Because what we begin to see is that where there is mindfulness, there is choice. There is choice about where we place our attention and the quality of that attention. Where there is mindfulness, there is a possibility of intention and also the possibility of freedom of no longer finding ourselves imprisoned by the picture that has been painted. We're touching the world and we're being touched by the world. Sensory impressions flow in. The choices we often have, or that we truly learn we do have, the choice we learn we do have, is about what flows out. And if we're to understand the architecture of distress, we're asked to understand how our world of experience is being fabricated and molded moment to moment. And I I realize I'm, I'm mixing metaphors here totally, so forgive me for that. But there's a, 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 there's a very significant teaching from the Buddha. He says, through many births I sought in vain the builder of this house of pain. Now, builder, thee I plainly see, this is the last abode for me. Thy gables yoke and rafters broke, my heart has peace. So again, the Buddha's pointing in this teaching once more to this process. Uh, You know, the house is our world of experience. How this is being built and how we're asked to understand it. Now, uh, I know it takes quite a lot of mindfulness, but this point of contact and feeling tone arising is such a crucial place to understand because in, in many ways, I think it really is the weakest link in the fabrication process. I mean, without mindfulness, we move so quickly from that point um, into a world of con- construction. So uh, when we don't see it, what happens? Contact feeling tone. Sensory impressions flow in or arise within the sense door of the mind. Now, without mindfulness, processes are triggered that tend to have a very familiar outcome in contractedness and struggle and distress. So what gets triggered at this point of, of, of feeling tone registering, of being touched the world. What is it that get trigger, gets triggered? Well, a lot of things that get, can get triggered. But one, one of the, the, some of the things that get triggered, the Pali word for this is anusias. Sometimes it's translated as underlying tendencies or patterns. A friend of mine, John, he translates it as the obsessions we lie down with. That's my favorite. 
the obsessions we lie down with. Obsessions really in Buddhist psychology is just about repetitive patterns, you know. I mean, it probably if you repeat something more than once, it's already an obsession. You know? That's bad news, isn't it? <laughs> obsessions we lie down with. Now, it can be really useful, I think, to have a little bit of reflection about what are the obsessions or the patterns we most frequently lie down with? It's an interesting question. What are the obsessions or patterns you most frequently lie down with? Is it craving? Is it aversion? Is it a sense of insufficiency? Is it uh, anxiety? Um, Is it views or doubt? Confusion? Is it the craving to become a certain kind of person or to somehow get rid of the kind of person we believe ourselves to be? How many moments in a day do we paint our world of experience with these patterns? How many moments in a day do we paint our world of experience with these patterns? And we learn to, to know this, not in order to depress ourselves, please, but so that we can learn from our experience, you know. To learn from experience, you have to know experience, you know. So we, do, we, we, we explore this in order to learn from our experience. And you know what? We learn to be disenchanted with contractedness and distress. And I know that sounds really weird, like who's enchanted with contractedness <laughs> and distress? We may not be contra- enchanted with contractedness and distress, but we can be quite enchanted by our patterns because this is what, what we use to make sense of the world. This is what we use to, to kind of find meaning. This is what we use to, to kind of find a sense of me. So in many ways, we can actually really be quite enchanted with that which is counterproductive to our well-being. We learn, actually, much more, I think, to be enchanted with stillness and with non-fabrication and with freedom. As we paint our world of experience, it follows that that world that has been painted is actually shaping our acts and speech and choices, isn't it? So we know this to be true, you know? The anxious mind will see the world in a certain way, will shape choices by that, you know, will act in certain ways, you know. Aversive mind will, you know, speak and act and behave and choose. In light, you know, the aversive mind doesn't actually have thoughts of kindness much, you know. And this is how we touch the world around us. And really out of compassion for ourselves and for the distress in in the world, I think we sense the urgency of learning to be disenchanted with distress and its origins. The origins in craving and aversion, confusion, really knowing that this world we are part of and participate in certainly doesn't need more greed or hatred or views or selfing. Um, these obsessions, these obsessions we lie down with, none of them are a life sentence. None of them are predetermined. Awareness, compassion, generosity, understanding, really are seeds of potentiality that lie within each of our hearts. We can also paint our world with these, inwardly and outwardly. 
But it does require, I think, a considerable reorientation inwardly. When we cease to be delighted and enchanted with the aggregates of distress building, we cease, I think we have to learn to, to cease seeing a payoff in craving or aversion. Hmm? Learning to be disenchanted with that. Learning to be disenchanted with self-building, that's an interesting one. You know, when we're so much encouraged culturally, you know, get yourself a self. <laughs> you know, as fast as you can, an unassailable one, you know, a perfect one, an admirable one, you know. It's such a life project, isn't it? And there's so much encouragement, you know, to get yourself a self. You know, one that people are going to admire, you know, that you're going to feel safe in. Anybody found one? spectacular, unsuccessful project in my mind. We learn to delight in that which is healing and liberating. The path, this path, you know, is really not concerned with, with producing perfect meditators. It's really concerned with, with, with cultivating ethical and awake people, touching the world with generosity and clarity and understanding. It takes, I think, really a good deal of commitment and effort, really to cultivate the lovely and the healing and liberating, rather than unconsciously cultivating the harmful. In the Dhammapada, there's a wonderful quote. She says, it's really not difficult for us to engage in... Uh, not, not difficult for us to engage in acts that undermine our well-being. It's far more challenging for us to engage in acts that contribute to our well-being. Isn't this just so true? You, know, you just don't really have to make a lot of effort to work up aversion, do you? You know, or to work up some craving or selfing. You know, it really does take some efforts to swim against that tide. So, with mindfulness sitting, with mindfulness sitting on the window sills of the. Of the, uh, of the windowsills and the door, door still, what we're learning to do is to step out of this cycles, these cycles of automatic reactivity. And we're learning to step into a world of responsiveness. We're learning in a very real sense to liberate the moment. Liberate the moment from craving. Liberate the moment from aversion. Liberate the moment from confusion. This is actually what we're engaged in here, and I think it can be a useful way to frame our path. And how do we know? How do we know uh, when there is craving or aversion or confusion operating? To learn to read those signals inwardly. You know, the contractedness, the discontent, the dis-ease, you know, the, uh, the dissociation, you know. We have to really learn to read those signals when we're, we're caught into the, in these this automatic reactivity patterns. You know, because this is the stuff of distress, and it is so optional. It truly is so optional. You know, and, and we cannot possibly think of a better thing really to commit to than to liberate in the moment from distress. When we do that, you know, the canvas we stand before, it's not blank. You know, it's not as if liberating the you know, liberating greed, hatred and delusion leaves a vacuum. 
This is actually where there is really the flourishing of depths of compassion, depths of generosity. It's, it's very important to understand we're, we're not actually cultivating two things at the same time. In cultivating generosity, we actually have in that moment abandoned the cultivation of craving. In cultivating kindness, we have in that moment abandoned the cultivation of ill will. In cultivating compassion, in that moment, we have abandoned the cultivation of harshness and intolerance. The opposite is also true. In cultivating ill will, and it is something we cultivate, in cultivating ill will, we have abandoned the cultivation of kindness. In cultivating clinging, we have abandoned the cultivation of generosity. With mindfulness established, we are more and more able to choose moment to moment what is being cultivated and what is being abandoned. This is a direct path to what the Buddha described as the unshakable liberation of the heart. Now, I know many people hear that phrase and I think, well, that sounds impossible. You know, I spend so much time swimming around in this soup of confusion. You know, the unshakable liberation of the heart, you know, somebody's dream. It sounds very remote, and yet it begins by tasting the liberation in all the small moments when we forsake the unlovely to cultivate the lovely. Because this is actually where we begin to have that taste of joyfulness, the taste of peace, and discover that this inner stillness that we cultivate here, this is not meant to dissociate us from the world. It's not meant to disconnect us from this world. But this stillness that we begin to cultivate here is the ground for the thoughts and the words and the acts that touch the world with kindness and generosity. I think this has always been the the timeless invitation, the heart of this path. And we don't need to search for the moments to cultivate the healing and the liberating. There in every moment we stand before that canvas with the palette of colors in our hands and being able to paint a world of stillness, of compassion, of care, of understanding. And here, in that moment, craving and aversion and selfing are actually cut off. When that happens, we really do understand, actually, that it's really only stillness and empathy and compassion that makes sense anymore. The freedom we find within, within is actually the most precious gift that we can offer to the world. And in trusting that offering, we can also help to liberate the world from greed and hatred and delusion. Okay. Thank you for your attention. Can we take a moment just to sit quietly? <coughs>
Thank you for your attention. So we have some time for some walking, then we'll come back again for the last group sitting at quarter two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.